Hello everybody, Kyle here, and welcome back to another installment of my Communist Book Club. As we continue our way through Svetlana Alexevich's Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets, we're continuing through Part 1. For those that are following along in the Audible audio version, we'll be looking at Chapter 5, How Stuff Became As Much As Words and Ideas, and Chapter 6, on How We Grew Up With Victims and Executioners. Two housekeeping items to shout out right off the top. One, we have a Facebook page and group set up, so searching Kyle's Communist Book Club over on Facebook should get you there. Also, fb.com forward slash Kyle's Communist Book Club will work. And there's a group attached to it, so if you'd like to join in on the conversation, make sure you jump into the group as well, and those two are interlinked. The cool news for today, we were reached out to by uh, a Soviet tour group that I've been following over on Instagram for some time. I think I had first checked out their page sometime over the summer of 2020. They reached out to congratulate me on the show, and as a cool coincidence, we are going to be sitting down and doing an interview in these coming weeks. So if you have questions for someone that runs a tour group through these ex-Soviet regions, please, please, please feel free to send those questions in. We're going to be talking about some ethical tourism, what it's like to interact with the people of the area, what it's like to hear those stories, and how they facilitate people to go through and do all of that. Having looked over their website before, they're a very professional group. They have tons of ethics outlined there, which I very much appreciate. So I look forward to sitting down and speaking with them, and I look forward to fielding any questions you have. You can get in touch with me through the links below or in the description, show notes for this episode. I'm just very honored to have a group like that reach out to me, one that I would love to use in the future if I'm able to travel abroad. With the housekeeping out of the way, let's let Alexevich set this up for us. How stuff became worth as much as words and ideas. The world shattered into dozens of colorful little pieces. We were so terribly eager for the gray Soviet every day to turn into a scene from an American movie. Not many people reflected on how we'd rallied in front of the White House. Those three days may have shaken the world, but we remained unshaken. 2,000 people will go out and demonstrate, and the rest will ride past them, looking at them like they're idiots. We drank a lot, we always do, but back then... We drank even more. Society stopped dead in its tracks. Where to next? Will there be capitalism? Or maybe some good kind of socialism? Capitalists are fat and scary. That's what they'd been telling us since we were little kids. Our country was suddenly covered in banks and billboards. A new breed of goods appeared. Instead of crummy boots and frumpy dresses, we finally got the stuff we'd always dreamed of. Blue jeans, winter coats, lingerie, decent dishware, everything bright and beautiful. Our old Soviet stuff was gray, ascetic, and looked as if it had been manufactured in wartime. We start off hearing the speaker discuss what it was like wanting and dreaming of better things. We finally got the stuff we always dreamed of. Blue jeans, winter coats, lingerie, decent dishware. Things that the average person can understand wanting. Stuff that they didn't have. She says things felt like they were manufactured in wartime. 
And historically speaking, there's a lot of truth to that. It was during the Cold War and previously World War II, so lots of wars to be had. We can understand what it's like to want better items. That is the world we live in. Consumerism drives us. As a friend I have that works at a TJ Maxx once said, it's just sickening seeing the stuff fly off the shelves, the stuff that you know will go into the trash heap, stuff you know people won't actually appreciate, but things that are filling a void in their hearts for the moment. I draw some American parallels to this commentary in the book, this idea that one would be willing, possibly even eager, to trade what they have for the potentiality of a better future. In some ways, that's what it means to be a revolutionary, to be hopeful, to be a dreamer, to want change. What's sad is that this didn't work out how they wanted it to. Though capitalist goods came to the country, the quality of living immediately dropped. We hear about libraries standing empty and stores instead taking their place. Billboards popping up all over the country. We'll hear more about that. In Soviet times, you were allowed to have a lot of books, but not an expensive car or house. We had to learn how to dress, cook good food, drink juice, and eat yogurt in the morning. Before, I had hated money. I didn't know what it was. My family never talked about it. It was considered shameful. We grew up in a country where money essentially did not exist. Like everyone else, I would get my 120 rubles a month, and that had been enough. Money appeared with perestroika, with Gaidar, real money. Instead of, our future is communism, the signs began exclaiming, buy now. I never dare speak for everyone in our audience, but I have to say, hearing this makes me yearn for a time when people didn't put the mighty dollar before everything else. That might very well make me a dreamer. Though looking at our world now, I think many of the people tuning into this podcast are probably also feeling a little bit of disillusion in the world. I have to say that my 29 years on this earth, I don't feel better having more stuff. In fact, I personally am one that doesn't chase higher dollar amounts in the way that most Americans might. I'm someone that's very content to live in what I have. I am lucky, very much so, in that I've worked and been able to achieve what I have. I've worked for and got myself a modest apartment, and it is safely well, I should say it is keeping me safe. It is, a, it is a, a roof over my head. I wish it were more of a safety net for people. We don't necessarily have that. Homes here, well, I should say necessarily, that's a joke. We don't have that here in the States. It's something, uh, house scarcity or l- lack of housing. Just We have tons of abandoned housing, but everyone charges so much. It's a hard world. People are fighting for places to live. Homelessness on the rise. The situation does not seem to be getting any better. So my quick injection here is one of, I guess, desperation for the moment. It is just a statement that it's unfortunate that we're chasing the dollar to the degree we are because we see so many people get hurt in the process. The speaker mentioned that in Soviet times you could have books but not fancy cars. Before that, they'd hated money. She didn't even know what it was. It was considered shameful. It didn't exist. There is some degree of money used within the Soviet Union, but not not to the degree that our listeners have come to know it. Our speaker also talks about the end of kitchen vigils 
and the beginning of making money. So that's a throwback. If you've been listening and paying attention to the previous chapters, we heard that kitchens were used as a spot for kind of dissident talk. Anything that the government wouldn't allow, uh, those Khrushchevkas, when people were moved out of the communal housing, when they had their own private apartments, the kitchen became the place to talk, to share stories, and to share gossip. That changed when people began making money. It seems to me, as an outsider reading this book, that when money came about, community began dissolving. I get a feel from these speakers that they feel like many of their countrymen sold out ideals to chase this cash. And that's what today's episode is really going to focus on. They say they got distracted by business. We forgot about Lenin and Stalin. She says this prevented a civil war all on its own. People didn't choose sides of red versus white because people wanted to live beautifully, not die beautifully. In fact, here's the quote. We chose the beautiful life. Nobody wanted to die beautiful anymore. They wanted to live beautifully instead. The only problem was that there wasn't enough to go around. We're going to experience a quick change of speaker here. We're going to see very briefly how one's priorities changed, how folks went from caring about lofty ideals such as heroism and fighting for a better tomorrow to instead gawking over diamond rings and fancy cars. Out of habit, I would go into the used bookstore where the full 200-volume sets of the World Classics Library and Library of Adventures now stood calmly, not flying off the shelves. Those orange bindings, the books that had once driven me mad. I'd stare at their spines and linger, inhaling their smell. Mountains of books. The intelligentsia were selling off their libraries. People had grown poor, of course, but it wasn't just for the spare cash. Ultimately, books had disappointed them. People were disillusioned. It became rude to ask, what are you reading? Too much about our lives had changed, and these weren't things that you could read about in books. Russian novels don't teach you how to become successful, how to get rich. Oblomov flies on his couch. Chekhov's protagonists drink tea and complain about their lives. There's a famous Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Few of us remained unchanged. Decent people seemed to have disappeared. Now it's teeth and elbows everywhere. Wow, doesn't that summarize it? I definitely feel like I live in a world of teeth and elbows. I wish I lived in a world of people caring about one another. That vibe does not seem to be the predominant one these days. Though that, by the very nature of this book club, is what we're hoping to change. I'm only one person using a platform that I have, a platform that I've built up, a platform that's available to me to just speak my piece through anecdotes of the past. My piece to transfer to everyone through this podcast is looking out for one another because a world of teeth and elbows, hmm, I just don't see a great success coming from that world. We hear the same speaker relay a story about their mother going to the hospital In their recovery, they had shared stories of Lenin, Stalin, and many other revolutionary heroes, and in some cases, villains. 
The mother was lauded as her own mini-hero in the ward. She kept people engaged. People were excited. They wanted to learn about these figures. They wanted to learn and have their eyes open. They wanted to be involved with a bigger picture story. But in five years, when the mother goes back to the hospital for some other ailment, this time it's different. This time she's not the star of the ward telling stories. Instead, it's a big-time businesswoman. She's the star with her money, her wealth, her nannies, her caretakers, her all of this that shows how people's interests change. It went from caring about what was maybe more virtuous or heroic as a person, what the individual was working toward, bettering the world, bettering themselves, to instead hero-worshipping those that have taken advantage of others, those that have concentrated the wealth at the top. Tell me that's not our modern life in a nutshell right there. As we have celebrities making tons of money, politicians, businessmen. Whew. The world is a strange place. We don't really value or I sh- I, maybe I should say the society at large. Media doesn't seem to value personal heroics versus wealth accumulation. Setting up our next clip, a change of speaker, a man who talks about business. He'll go on to talk about people lining up in the banks, trying to get their hands on money to start a business, bakeries, electronic shops, etc. Though at the same time, psych wards were overflowing. It was hardly a beautiful time. It was the changing of an empire. It was the changing of people's minds. It was the changing of families. People who had fought for freedom only to be raising kids that were making money. Parents that were taught to hate money. Fighting with their kids who were trying to make it. To survive. Now, we take for granted, most of us listeners here, most of us that grew up with capitalism, we take it for granted that we have some understanding of money. Not everyone, though. We have many people that don't get proper education about it. We have some children that are raised by parents that already have bad spending habits. Though in this case, we're looking at families that were taught and raised, educated to hate money. It wasn't relevant to the system. Now being forced to make it. I think for many Americans, the idea of Pick yourself up by your bootstraps would kick in at a moment like this. But I'd urge anyone that has that feeling to take a step back. Think about that for a second. What would it be like to be working for something that you absolutely hated a minute ago, trying to build capital after you were just trying to build socialism? But the minute someone from the podium said, sell and prosper, all of that went out the window. Everyone forgot the Soviet books. These people were nothing like the ones I'd been staying up all night with, strumming the guitar. I barely knew three chords. The only thing they had in common with the kitchen folk was that they were also sick of the red calico flags and all that flotsam. The Komsomol meetings, political literacy classes, socialism had treated the people like they were dummies. I know full well what it means to dream. My whole childhood... I begged for a bicycle, and I never did get one. We were too poor. In school, I sold blue jeans on the side. In college, it was Soviet war uniforms and memorabilia. Foreigners loved that stuff. Your run-of-the-mill black market goods. In Soviet times, you could get three to five years for that if they caught you. My father would chase me around the house with his belt, screaming, You profiteer! I spilled blood defending Moscow only to raise a little shithead. Yesterday, it was crime. Today, it's business. 
And we see right there an example, the father yelling at the son because he had spilled blood for Moscow, but the child is trying to make money. That's something that, again, is hard for most of us to wrap our heads around at first. But I, I just want to draw that, that out, how, how big of a change that would be to a family. This speaker talks about not knowing what to do with money, claiming they became the sl a slave to the box that they were storing it in. He said, I didn't know you were supposed to put big money to work, meaning investing it. Instead, just stashing it away and then going and spending a lot of it at a casino and on other large purchases. At one point, they think they have everything that will make them happy, but only later to find out that there was no more money in the box. It was something that had to be continuously worked for and fulfilled. It's also a line in this that I thought was interesting. It says, I lost interest in all the things I was interested in before. I lost interest in the politics and the protests. As we wrap up chapter five in the Audible book, we're going to jump over to chapter six on how we grew up with victims and executioners. This chapter is going to be a bit gruesome as it talks about uh, the camps, talks about gulags and the NKVD or the secret police that was around in Stalin's time. Uh, so before 1950, this one is possibly going to be difficult, but it's also one of the most important chapters for those outside of Eastern Europe, especially to those that didn't grow up in a society of war. Why didn't we put Stalin on trial? I'll tell you why. In order to condemn Stalin, you'd have to condemn your friends and relatives along with him, the people closest to you. I'll tell you about my own family. My father was arrested in 1937 and, thank God, came back after doing 10 years in the camps. He returned eager to live. He himself was amazed that he still wanted to after everything that he'd seen. This wasn't the case with everyone, not by a long shot. My generation grew up with fathers who'd either returned from the camps or the war. The only thing they could tell us about was violence, death. They rarely laughed and were mostly silent. They drank and drank until they finally drank themselves to death. The other option, the people who were never arrested, spent their whole lives fearing arrest. This wouldn't be for a month or two. It would go on for years, years. And if they didn't get time, they'd wonder, why did they arrest everybody but me? What am I doing wrong? They could put you in prison or they could put you to work for the NKVD. The party requests, the party commands. It's not a pleasant choice to have to make, but many were forced to make it. As for the executioners, the everyday ones, not the monsters. Our neighbor Yuri turned out to have been the one who informed on my father. For nothing, as my mother would say. I was seven. Yuri would take me and his kids fishing and horseback riding. He'd mend our fence. You end up with a completely different picture of what an executioner is like. Just a regular person, even a decent one. A normal guy. I think this is the part people have a hard time understanding when we talk about totalitarian regimes and authoritarian states. People are weaponized against each other quite often. That's what keeps a lot of the power. In my mind, there's no accidental correlation between the intentional brainwashing efforts people put out to get the youth militarized and involved in defending the state, especially in these cases. We hear about people in, in this story, family members, neighbor telling on one another. The neighbor, Yuri, who actually reported on their family, reported on his father. Yuri was, as he says, a good guy, took him fishing, took him out, uh, just a good overall person. 
yet they were reporting to the NKVD and reporting on people. As he said, the party requests, the party demands. Outside that clip, we get a little information on Aunt Olga. Aunt Olga was also an informant. And when our speaker asks Aunt Olga, why? What happened? I, I should say it first. He asks, what, what, what do you remember of 1937? To which she says it was the happiest year of her life that she was in love. That didn't answer the question. So he specifically asks, why did you report? Why did you do that? Her answer, show me an honest person that survived Stalin's time. It's very easy for us to throw stones when we hear these stories. Why did you act this way? Why did you do that? Why were people behaving the way they did? Extreme state terror that was happening under Stalin's regime really changes the dynamic, though. We can't look at that as we do most of modern life. We can't, well, for those that aren't living in that form of, of society right now, we just can't wrap our heads around exactly how that works. But the idea that why, why couldn't we put Stalin on trial, we'd have to convict our neighbors, our family, sometimes even ourselves. It wasn't just Stalin or Beria. Lavrenti Beria being the head of the NKVD under Stalin, carrying out many of these acts. A man with a rap sheet, very interesting on his own, aside from the organization that he headed. Just to let this sink in for a second, that they were growing up with victims and executioners. Let's jump back to Alexevich for a second. She's going to set up a situation, a bunch of voices, a cacophony of voices, ringing out as a conflict between people who supported the Soviet state and those against it have an altercation and voice different views. It's May 1st. On this day, communists march through the streets of Moscow by the thousands. The capital reddens once again, filling with red flags, red balloons, and red t-shirts with hammers and sickles. Portraits of Lenin and Stalin soar over the crowd. More Stalins than Lenins. The signs read, We'll see your capitalism dead and buried. Red banners advance on the Kremlin. Regular Moscow watches from the sidewalk as Red Moscow barrels down the road. Skirmishes flare up at the crowd's edges. Here and there they escalate into fistfights. The police are incapable of untangling these two Moscows. I barely have time to write down everything I hear. Alexevich sure hears a lot. Some people are angry about the fall of the USSR. Some people want Stalin back to shoot the traitors of the Union. If only we had Stalin back for a day, he'd shoot them all, and then he could rest. We have a mention of religion. At the same time, we have someone yelling anti-Semitically that Marx was a Jew. As if that's some sort of accusation of anything. People throw insults about the gulags. One in particular cries out, Why did you have to murder the Tsar? You didn't even spare his children. Another, you can't build a great Russia without a great Stalin. Someone in agreement with that saying, I'm a simple man. Stalin never touched people like me. To which people eagerly responded, you red KGB goons. Soon you'll say the only camps we had were pioneer camps. And the voices continue. The arguments continue. Some saying, my family was just simple workers. They were taken. Clearly a divisive 
area of opinion. We move on to a story of a student and a homeless man drinking and philosophizing. Alexevich says the conversation is always about the fate of Russia and communism. The homeless man saying, I drink because I don't like my life. I want to transport myself to a place that is good and beautiful. The student asks if it's better to live in a great country or a normal one, expressing a bit of their views that war isn't the answer, that the path they were on may not be the one that's best suited for them, instead preferring to live in a smaller country, a more neutral country, one that's, dare I say, unremarkable. The homeless man instead likes the empire, feeling that they were working for something great, working towards something better, working towards changing the world, not hanging on with the mediocrity of it. A great idea demands blood. Today, nobody wants to go off and die somewhere, fighting in some war. It's like that song, money, money, money everywhere. Money everywhere, gentlemen. But if you insist that we do have a goal, then what is it exactly? That everyone drive a Mercedes and have tickets to Miami? Russians need something to believe in. Something lofty and luminous. Empire and communism are ingrained in us. We seek out heroic ideals. With socialism, the people were participating in history. They were living through something great. That's the question I'll leave you with this week. What is the goal? I can tell you I'm working towards a better world for humans, for animals, and for the planet itself. I think if those three things are out of harmony, we failed as a society, we failed as a culture. Right now, we're eagerly pushing for the destruction of all three. I mean, goodness gracious, we're putting the turbo jets on that one, if you will. We're really barreling fast and asking, how can we go faster? How can we destroy more? How can we ruin more people's lives? How can we kill more animals? How can we destroy our planet faster? It's not my goal, and it's not the direction I want to be working towards. I hope listeners out there also share a goal that is one of humanity, of protecting what we can, and of building a better future. So tell me, what is your goal? What draws you to communism? Why are you listening to the podcast and what are you hoping to learn? On next week's episode, we will wrap up Audible's chapter 7 and begin chapter 8. Chapter 8, for those following along in the physical form, is 10 stories in a red interior and begins on page 41. That chapter runs for about 200 pages, going from page 41 to page 248. That will take quite some time, and I do expect us to get through that on a semi-weekly basis. We'll see how much of that fits in how many parts. I hope this format is working well, and if you have suggestions on it, I am more than welcome to hear them. Uh, please feel free. Contact me through all those links in the description below. I would love it if you come check us out on Twitter. You can find us at twitter.com forward slash Kyle Communist. And again, we're on Facebook at fb.com forward slash Kyle's Communist Book Club. I myself can be found at Kyle Paranormal on Twitter and pretty much everywhere across the web. I should also mention we're getting back into Twitch streaming. If you're around in the evenings, about 5 p.m. Eastern time to about 9 or so in the night, we usually are playing some sort of game. So if you want to hang out with us, please do so. We've also got another podcast called Chaos and Shadow. It's about paranormal stuff and sometimes dips into Soviet lore as we talk about stories that came out of that region. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and I will catch you all next week. Everyone stay safe out there. Bye-bye.